Well, good morning again. My name is Micah Harriman. If I didn't introduce myself earlier, I am the uh, Associate Pastor of Evangelism and Discipleship. Uh, and I love the opportunity when, when Pastor Chris goes on vacation and I get to open God's Word with you uh, and we get to study it together. Uh, this passage is, is one of my favorite passages in all of the Old Testament. And I have to apologize because if you're a, a student of Campus Outreach who is on their fall retreat, uh, you're going to be hearing uh, a passage that we talked about on that retreat. So uh, there's nothing new under the sun, and God usually stirs us up by way of reminder uh, rather than teaching us new things. So I, I would invite you to, to listen attentively uh, as if you were hearing it for the first time. But uh, th- this passage is, is near and dear to my heart, and so what we're going to be talking about today is the idea of, of a soul that is satisfied. And one of the things that, that I want to point out is Scripture teaches us is that we as human beings were designed to find joy a very particular way. And so uh, I'm going to tell you a story, and maybe this story will kind of unpack that a little bit for you. I heard a story once. I don't know that it's true, but I believe that it is not. But the story goes that a family was spending some time at grandfather's house, and they were at the grandfather's house, and they had the children and the grandkids, and they were talking about all these different ways. Man, I miss you. I wish we saw you more. And so they got the great idea of we're going to buy granddaddy an iPad. And then that way, when we're out of town, we can FaceTime. He can see the grandkids. He, he can do all this. So uh, next Christmas, they buy an iPad. They, they help him set it up. And, and then they leave, and, and they're trying to set up FaceTime, and they're trying to communicate, and it's just not working. They, for whatever reason, he can't figure out how to get the iPad set up. He can't figure out how to FaceTime the grandkids. And they say, okay, well, we'll, we'll make a, a trip to Granddaddy's house, and, and we'll help him uh, fix the iPad so that we can talk. And when they get there, Granddaddy's in the kitchen, and, and he's, he's cutting up onions. And they see uh, he, he's making a, a delicious stew, and it smells good. And they say, Granddaddy, wh- where, what is going on? Where is the iPad? And he cuts, cuts. And he goes, oh, it's right here. He, he had turned the iPad into a cutting board, and so he pour, pours, the, pours the onions off and washes it on the sink, and he says, here, can you please help me set up FaceTime? I have no idea how this thing works, but it makes a great cutting board, right? Now, that story makes us cringe, I, I think, for a couple of reasons. One, a $1,200 cutting board is far above my budget for what I want to spend on kitchen cutlery. But the second reason that I think that story makes us cringe is because when something is not being used according to its design, when something is not being used according to its purpose, it just becomes a lesser than thing. It just makes us cringe. An iPad, I'm sure an iPad makes a great cutting board. It's smooth, it's sleek, it's, it's very smooth when you go to make the cuts, but, but that is far inferior to what it was designed to do. It was designed to surf the web, download movies, talk with your grandchildren. It's designed for so much more, but it was being used as a cutting board. So what's the point? When it comes to our satisfaction, when it comes to Christian joy, you and I have no idea what actually satisfies our soul unless we look to Scripture to see how we were designed to be satisfied. So if we look at the very beginning of Scripture, we see something very interesting that God does with us. In Genesis 2, God forms man out of the dust of the ground, giving us a body that is temporal, and then he breathes into our nostrils the breath of life, giving us a soul that's eternal. 
a great spiritual mentor of mine. Uh, some may call him a guru, Dr. Alan Amison, uh, once said it this way. He said, anything that's eternal is worth more than everything that's temporal. Anything that's eternal is worth more than everything that's temporal. So if I am a human being made from the dirt of the ground, but also in the image of God, then I have a body with desires for temporary things, with desires for the things of this earth, but I also have a soul. And that soul longs for something that's eternal. That soul is designed to be satisfied by, that, by what is eternal. And, and so the point is that if I get temporal desires, it will not quench the eternal desire within my soul. But if I get the eternal desire of my soul quenched, then the temporal desires of this world are not worth comparing, as Paul teaches in the New Testament. So the question this morning before us is, how do we quench the desire of your soul? How do we quench the desire of your soul? Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Let me pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we have the opportunity to open your word, divine word, holy word, this word that is not from me but a word that is from you. God, I love this passage so much because it hits at at the core of of humanity's desire, God, and it's something that I long to experience in an ever-increasing joy. God, it is something that I don't experience nearly as often as I should, and so, Lord, I turn to you and ask that the words that come from my mouth would would be your words, That, that if anything comes out of my mouth that is not in line with Scripture or in line with uh, with this passage, God, would it fall on deaf ears? But God, if, if words do come out that are from you, Lord, would it pierce our hearts? Would it bring about conviction? Would it bring about lasting and satisfying joy? I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So God satisfies your soul. God satisfies your soul when you're in the desert and are thinking of returning to the slavery of sin. 
God satisfies your soul when you're in the desert and are thinking of returning to the slavery of sin. So let me give you a little bit of context here because we're jumping right into uh, the middle of Exodus 17. So a little bit of context. Israel was in slavery in Egypt for 430 years prior to this, okay? And and a lot happened during that time. When they came into slavery in, in Egypt, they came in as the people of Israel, the family of Israel. They were 70 people who came in uh, at the beginning uh, when, when Joseph uh, was sold into slavery. But since then, they have grown to when they leave Israel to being 600,000 men, not including women and children. So scholars estimate that there's about 2 million people, in, including men, women, and children, coming out of, Israel, uh, of Exodus coming out of Egypt, and what happened? How did God bring the people of Israel out? Well, there was these 10 plagues. Each plague was more severe. Each plague was aimed at showing the power of God Almighty, the power of Yahweh over the gods of Egypt. And so as each god of Egypt bowed, the the heart of Pharaoh grew harder and harder and harder until the final plague that we call the Passover where the people of Israel killed the Passover lamb and sprinkled its blood over their doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over their firstborn son. And when this plague happened, Pharaoh said, go, be gone. Well, in the midst of that, a couple things are really interesting that happened. At first, it says that Israel plundered Egypt. So they asked their neighbors for goods and for gold and for silver. And the people of Israel who come into Egypt as a lowly family who are prone to all sorts of attacks, they leave Egypt two million strong in one of the wealthiest nations in that part of the world. When they leave, though, Pharaoh changes his mind. It says God hardened his heart again. And so the people of, Israel, of Egypt chase after the people of Israel. And God miraculously, probably the greatest testament of, of God's power in the Old Testament is that he opens the Red Sea for the people of Israel to walk through on dry ground and, and then wander in the wilderness. That story was 47 days before our story today. So about a month and a half ago, the, the people of Israel saw the, the plagues of, uh, of God, and, and they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. But a month and a half is a long time, or, or so it would seem, according to our text. Pick up with me in verse 1. It says, all the, congregation, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of seen by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. So one thing that jumps out to me here is, is when we think of wilderness, I think we typically think of the woods or we think of the forest, we think of the, maybe the mountains of North Carolina, something like that. When the Bible talks about wilderness, what, what the Bible is talking about is the desert. So they are wandering in the desert. They, they are wandering through the wilderness and they are thirsty. Here's a, a definition for desert. A desert is a barren land that is incapable of supporting human life. It's a barren land that is incapable of supporting human life. There's not enough water there to grow food, and there's not enough water there to hunt food, and the people are two million deep, and they're thirsty. And they're thirsty. And so one thing that Scripture teaches us all throughout Scripture is that Israel's exodus and then wandering in the wilderness is an analogy for the Christian life. 
It is this picture that all of us at one time were enslaved to our sin, just as the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. It's a picture that God does a miraculous work to bring us out of our sin in the same way that God does a miraculous work to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt. He then takes us and baptizes us through the waters of the Red Sea, and then we spend the rest of our lives wandering around in the desert, wandering around in the wilderness, waiting on the promised land. A desert is a barren land that is incapable of supporting human life. So what's our desert? As Christians, what, what is our desert? That, what is our wilderness that we are called to wander around in while we wait on glory, while we wait to see Jesus in heaven? The desert that we walk in is the fallen world that we still live in on this journey to the promised land of, of being in heaven. And just as the desert in Israel's day was incapable of supporting human life, the, the desert that we live in, the, the wilderness that we wander in, is incapable of supporting spiritual joy, soul-level joy. It, it's incapable for a, a couple reasons. I'm going to give you two reasons why I think this world was not created to satisfy your soul. Reason number one, the basic DNA of this world says the more you get, the more you want. The, the more stuff that I can acquire, the more things, the more success, the, the, the more uh, status that I get, it doesn't leave me feeling full, it leaves me wanting more, right? And, and so we, we get something called a promotion, and we were praying, God, I, I don't have enough money, don't have enough money, I get a promotion, I get more money, I'm thankful, and about 30 seconds later, I go, man, I figured out a way how to spend all that money. I really need some more money. I really need another promotion. The reason why the world doesn't satisfy is because it is hardwired into our DNA to get a gift, to be excited, and then to expect it. This world doesn't satisfy because the more we get, the more we want. That's why the iPhone 14 exists, right? What was wrong with the iPhone 8? Like, it was all right for a little while. And then 9, 10, 11, 12. We, we see this with people who are addicted to drugs, right? As people do not become addicted to drugs overnight, what happens is you go and you try a drug, and the first high is so good and so satisfying. And then the second time, you go back looking for that first high, and it just isn't as good. So what do you need? Well, I've got to increase the dosage. i got to get a little bit more. Or maybe I need to increase the frequency. I need to get a little bit more. And pretty soon, the person begins to spiral out of control, longing for, looking for something to satisfy them the way that it did the first time. But that never will fulfill that desire never will fulfill that purpose. And so we look for things in this world like success, thinking if I get a little bit more success, I'll be satisfied, and I get a little bit more, and I just become discontent. John D. Rockefeller, the wealthiest man of his generation, was once asked the question, how much money is enough? To which he responded, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more, then I'll be happy. Just a little bit more, then I'll be satisfied. Just a little bit more and I'll be fulfilled. Well, the reason why this world doesn't satisfy is because contentment is internal, not external. And, and so the, the hardwired DNA of the world is the more I get, the more I want, but the truth of Scripture is that contentment is internal and not external. Here's the second reason why this world doesn't satisfy. The second law of thermodynamics. 
So if you see Chris later this week, make sure he knows that I worked in second law of thermodynamics into this sermon because that is like, that's not an easy thing to do. Here's the second law of thermodynamics. It says this, the state of entropy of the entire universe as an isolated system will always increase over time. What that means is if left alone, created matter always uh, goes from order to disorder, order to chaos. So I can give you an example of this. We've got uh, turkey season coming up, uh, Thanksgiving coming up in a couple weeks, and depending on what you do, maybe you fry it, maybe you smoke it, maybe maybe you put it in the oven. Whatever you do to to get turkey ready for Thanksgiving Day, it is going to come to the table, and it's going to be a golden, crispy brown, and the inside is going to be juicy, and it's going to be full of taste, and it's going to be warm, and it's going to be so satisfying, right? Leave it on the table three hours, and it's cold. Leave it on the table three days, and it stinks. Leave it on the table three weeks, and it's a health hazard. This world does not satisfy our soul because the more you get, the more you want. And the second you get it, it begins to rot. The things of this world, the creation of this world was never meant to satisfy your soul. Why? Because God created us in his image which means we're both body, which is temporal, and soul, which lasts forever. So what is God trying to teach us in the wilderness? Pick up with me in verse 2. So the people thirsted, therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so the people respond. They are in the wilderness, and they are thirsty. And so how do they respond? They respond the same way that we respond. When we get tired and thirsty, we get grumpy, and we get grumbly. They grumbled, and they complained. Now, here's my question for you. Did their thirst cause them to grumble? No, their thirst revealed their grumbling hearts. Their thirst brought out an internal grumbling. Isn't that a lot like us? That when we do not get the thing that we want or the thing that we expect or the thing that we desire, we begin to turn inward and we start grumble, grumble, grumble. And some of us, if we're bold, we'll say, God, why didn't you give me whatever it is? Why didn't you give me the, the spouse? Why didn't you give me the promotion? Why didn't you give me the new car? Why didn't you give me the house? Why didn't you give me the status? Why didn't you give me the security? See, here's the thing is, as a species, we're extremely adaptable. We talked about this earlier, that we get something, we adapt to it, now it becomes an expectation. So it's no longer a gift that I'm excited about, it's an expectation that I demand and that I deserve. You know what we call that? You know what the world calls that? Being entitled. The world says that we are an entitled people. I would say in the Western Hemisphere, this is the most entitled generation of human history. We demand because we deserve. We, we see this world and we say, God, why would you let that bad thing happen to me? Well, why not? Why not let the bad thing happen to you? Does he, is he a God who serves me, who, who bows his knee to me so that he can fulfill all of my wants and all of my desires and all of my comforts? No. He is the eternal God who created us in his image. He's not created in ours. And so when he 
uh, puts a, a hardship into our life, we have the wrong belief at its core that this world is meant to satisfy. So I'll take Jesus as long as I get my comfort too. I'll take Jesus as long as I get my security. I'll take Jesus as long as he doesn't touch my 401k. As long as I know that I will be provided for tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that, me and Jesus are good. But the second any of that is tested, grumble, 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 complain, complain, complain. But look at what Moses says. Moses identifies the issue in the people. He says, why do you quarrel with me and why do you test the Lord? See, the people's complaint is not against Moses primarily. The people's complaint is actually against God. And I think we would all agree here that that's a pretty dangerous place to be. When my complaint, when my grumbling goes up against an almighty God who gives me the next breath that I breathe, it's a pretty dangerous place to be. But my question is, what is their complaint? Like, like why are they angry with God? Look at what it says. It said, they say, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So the people of Israel are not questioning God's ability. They just saw him perform 10 plagues on the world's superpower of the time to make them fall so that they could leave. They just saw God's ability when he opened up the Red Sea for them to walk through on dry ground. They are not questioning his ability. They're questioning his goodness. God, why did you bring us out? Did you bring us out here to kill us? To kill our family? To kill our livestock? They're accusing God of being unwilling to satisfy their desire. Therefore, he is not good. He, he, he isn't satisfying me in the moment, so he must not be good. So why does God bring people out into the desert? I would say this. God takes us through the wilderness to show us that the pleasures of this world don't satisfy the soul. God takes us through the wilderness to show us that the pleasures of this world do not satisfy the soul. In us, like the people of Israel, so often while we are walking through a wilderness season, we look up and we're thirsty. And we say, God, why wouldn't you give me the promotion? God, why wouldn't you give me the security? He must not love me. He must not be good. I don't know about you, but if I'm God, my Bible's about that thick. Like, they're done. If that's the complaint that, that this ungrateful people brought up against me, you were just in slavery. You know the best that you can do? Get yourself enslaved for 430 years. I brought you out with all these miracles. I brought you out with all this power. That was only a month and a half ago. Are you so easily uh, forgotten what I have done for you? My Bible would be about that thing. But God is rich in mercy, and he's big enough to take our greatest criticism, and he's big enough to take our greatest complaint, and he's great enough to, to turn us back to him and his grace. So let's look at the second point. God satisfies your soul by providing spiritual water that tastes better and lasts longer than the pleasures of this world. God satisfies your soul by providing spiritual water that tastes better and lasts longer than the pleasures of this world. Pick up with me in verse four. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders. So 
The people come, they are in the wilderness, they are thirsty, and and they come before Moses with their complaint, and and God comes up with this plan. Moses, go take your staff, go hit this rock, water's going to come out, everybody's going to be quiet. Everybody's going to be good. My question is, and this is just kind of where my brain goes sometimes in these texts, is like, what kind of water came out? Like, like what do you picture in this moment when you think of Moses striking a rock? Because what I picture, and I think this probably tells you a lot about how I view God, I picture this miracle going something like this. He strikes the rock, and then nothing, and then like drip, 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 and it's like, man, that's pretty crazy, right? Like water from a rock. We've never seen anything like that before. But here's the thing. What does the text tell us? The text tells us there's two million people. So when Moses strikes the rock, it's not this slow drip of his grace like, all right, I'm, I'm going to give you just to kind of get you off my back. He gives in so much abundance that two million people, including livestock, are able to drink from it. Like that's raging water type water. That is fast moving, huge spring. That is a lot of water. But here's the second thing. What about the, the, the quality of the water? See, I, I don't know if anybody has ever been to kind of like the North Carolina mountains and gone to like a creek or um, a place where like natural water runs through. But I've, I've got a picture. We go to a place each year with my family called Deep Creek, and this is one of the, the waterfalls. And I love this trip because what we do is we go get a tube and we walk to the top of this, uh, this mountain, and then we just ride the tube down all day. And no matter what time of year it is, the water's like 60 degrees, it's crystal clear, and it's ice cold. Like, it is a wonderful place to, to grow up as a child and then to now be able to take my children. And when I think of water from the rock, I think God would have been just as good to give these people just some stale, lukewarm water. But, but I've never seen water that comes from a rock that isn't ice cold and clear and, and delicious to drink. God tells us a lot about his character and the type of water that he gives his people. He isn't a withholding God who gives you just enough to survive. He is a, a God of abundance who gives you more than enough to be satisfied in his soul. So God didn't have to create things that, that give us pleasure. Think about this. Like, why do we have the ability to taste? There is no logical explanation. There is no logical function for being able to taste except that it gives us joy. It gives us pleasure. Thanksgiving dinner tastes a lot better when the food is good and when it's warm and, and when it tastes what, good. Why did God give us these experiences of, of just a summer breeze on our neck or the grass between our toes on a cool spring morning? Why? Because he does this to, to show through his creation an expression of his goodness. Anything in this world that gives you joy is a foreshadowing of the satisfaction we were created to experience in him. So Pastor Chris kind of alluded to a a quote by a guy named C.S. Lewis uh, last week. I want to read that quote in its entirety and then kind of unpack it a little bit for us. It says this. It says, Creatures are not born with desire unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy... The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. 
If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a copy or echo or mirage. So what's C.S. Lewis getting at here? He says, we do not have a desire within us unless satisfaction for that desire exists, right? So why do I have the desire of thirst. I have the desire of thirst because water exists. Why do I have the desire of hunger? Because food exists. Why do I have the, the, the longing for relationship? Because friendships exist, right? So that's kind of the, the first point. The second point is this. He says, but if I find a, a desire that nothing in this world satisfies, the only conclusion is I was made for another world. So if I find within me a, a desire after trying everything the world has to offer, if I still find a nagging within my soul, if I still find a desire within my soul that is not met, that is not quenched, I would say that's an eternal desire. That's a, a soul-level desire. That desire does not point to me that the world is a fraud or that all is vain. That desire points to me that I was made for another world. That desire shows that I was created for a different type of satisfaction. And then he says this, earthly desires don't satisfy, but arouse our eternal desire as a copy or shadow of the real thing. So any physical desire that we have, any temporal desire that we have, it is good when it is met in our physical being, but it is always a shadow of a spiritual reality. And so God gives us thirst so that we can know what it is like for our soul to be eternally quenched. God gives us sex so that we can know what it is like to find pleasure in a relationship with him. God gives us desire for relationships so that we can know what it is like to be fully secured in, in a loving relationship with Christ. See, this is why extremely successful people, like people who have more money, more status, more security than you and I will ever have, that's why they're really unsatisfied. The reason why is because they've tried the world, and they've tried the world more than maybe you and I have ever tried the world. And the, the reason that they're unsatisfied is because the good gifts that were meant to push them, the good gifts that were meant to open their eyes to the Father, they have terminated, and they have looked for those good gifts to satisfy them, and they're miserable for it. Why? Because in this world, the more you get, the more you want. In this world, the more you get, the more you want. God himself describes it this way when he's talking about sin. In Jeremiah 2.13, he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and honed for themselves cisterns, uh, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So he says, when we sin, we do two things. One, we forsake God. We forsake the fount of living water. We forsake what was truly meant to satisfy us in our soul. And second, we run to cisterns. Now, a cistern in that day was, uh, it was like a well, but not deep enough to get to water in the ground. A, a cistern was kind of a pool that instead of tapping into water below the ground, it just caught rainwater. And so a cistern is a, a lot of dirt and then a lot of old, stagnant rainwater. People never drank from cisterns. Only animals want to drink from cisterns. So you picture muddy, murky, dirty, uh, donkey saliva, like water. And he says, when we sin, we forsake this spring, this fresh mountain water, this fresh water from a rock, and we run to dirty, murky cisterns. More than that, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
So imagine the, the cistern that's broken and all the water's drained out. What do you have left at the bottom? A lot of mud, a lot of filth. It doesn't satisfy, it doesn't quench our thirst. So is sin satisfying our soul? If so, then God is not good. If sin can satisfy your soul, then God is not good. He's withholding. If sin can satisfy your soul eternally, then God is not good. He's withholding. But here's the thing. Sin satisfies us temporarily, but it always attaches all sorts of baggage to it. It always attaches so many things that point to, that ultimately do not satisfy the soul. Why? Because it was never designed to to satisfy the soul. So if sin doesn't satisfy, then God is good. And being in his presence is the greatest expression and experience of joy. The greatest expression and experience of uh, satisfaction. Where do I see that in the text? If you look at verse 6. He uses the word behold. It's the only time he uses this word in the text. And behold is kind of those words that's like, slow down, look over here. I'm about to say something really, really, really important about this story, but I'm going to say it right here and look at what he says in verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you on the rock. So why do you think the people of Israel left the wilderness? Because satisfied. Was it because... Their thirst was quenched? It's like, no, they're going to be thirsty tomorrow. Why did they leave this experience satisfied? Because they got God. They went into the wilderness as the people of God, and in the depth of their despair, in the depth of their longing, they get an audience with God. Here's a couple passages that say the same thing. Psalm 42, 1 and 2 says this, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? Your soul, deep down within you, the longing of your eternal being does not thirst for more stuff. Your soul does not thirst for more success or for more status or for more temporary pleasures. Yours and my soul does not thirst for a better sex life or a better retirement account or another vacation. Your soul, my soul, pants within us for a personal relationship with God. Our soul longs. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Second verse, Psalm 1611 says this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You can't get fuller than full. You can't get fuller than full. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is how God has intricately designed us to be satisfied. And so when we think about what what does it look like to be designed for joy, we are designed to find soul-level satisfaction in a relationship with God, in a deep, intimate, personal relationship with God. This doesn't mean that the world is vain or that the gifts of God are um, unsatisfying. It, It just means that we are created for something better. We're created for a better joy, a better hope, a better satisfaction. So so why does God bring his people into the desert? The first was to to rid us of of our wrong desires. Second, why does God bring us into the desert? Because water tastes so much more, so much better when you're thirsty. Water tastes so much better when you're thirsty. So God takes us through the wilderness to loosen our grasp of this world so that we would long to experience his presence all the more. 
God takes us through seasons of dryness. Why? Because we're entitled and we're hard-headed. And we keep wanting to run back to temporal pleasure, back to temporal pleasure, back to temporal pleasure. So if it's not success, it's status. If it's not status, it's power. If it's not power, it's money. And all the while, my soul is saying, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. God takes us through the wilderness so that we would find life in a relationship with him. God takes us through the wilderness to increase our thirst for his presence. So what's the verdict in the text? We said that the people's accusation was that God was not good because he brought them out into the wilderness to kill them. But what does God do? God provides water from a rock. Unbelievable means. I think that implies to us that God is good. He takes his people into the wilderness to satisfy them with the rock, and he's been taking Christians out into the wilderness throughout the entire history of Christianity so that when we wander through the world, we too would drink from him and realize that he alone offers soul-satisfying salvation. But here's the issue. God created us to find life in a relationship with him, but our sin has separated us from his presence. Our sin has separated us from his grace. And if that is true, then my soul cannot be satisfied because I cannot enter into the presence of God. So how does God resolve to bring us into his all-satisfying presence? Pick up with me uh, in verse 5. It says this. Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will, stand with, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. So God satisfies your soul, thirdly, by giving you access to his presence through the sacrifice of Jesus. God satisfies your soul by giving you access to his presence through the sacrifice of Jesus. So a couple things jump out from, from this passage in the text. He says, take with you the staff with which, he struck, with which you struck the Nile. Now, what happened when Moses struck the Nile? So the, the Nile was representative of uh, Egypt's economic power. The, the reason why Egypt was so powerful, so wealthy, so strong is because they had this huge river called the Nile that w- was uh, their place of commerce. It was their place of protection. It was their place of wealth. It, it allowed them to ascend to be the world superpower of that time. Well, what happened earlier in Exodus, just a few chapters ago, Moses came and he struck the Nile. And this is what happened. Exodus 7, verse 20. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. Blood was everywhere in Egypt, the main source of Egypt's power, the main source of their commerce, the main source of their wealth. When the, the staff struck that, that water, it turned to blood. What once gave life now gave death. What once gave hope and joy and satisfaction now produced judgment and guilt and death. So what's Moses thinking when God gives him this command? If he's anything like me, he's thinking, all right. About to get some retribution on these fools. Like, here we go. They're complaining against me. They're grumbling. I'm about to strike this right. We're about to bring some judgment. We're about to bring some blood. I can't wait. But what actually happens? 
God says, take the staff, the same staff which, with which you struck the Nile, signifying judgment and signifying my wrath and signifying the death of all of Egypt, and strike the rock, and water's going to come out. Why? Because here's the difference. Behold, I will stand there before you on the rock. So when you strike the rock, you're striking me. And the, the staff with, with which brought judgment and wrath and justice to the people of Israel will hit me. And only life and life abundantly will come out for you. The, the same strike that brought justice, that brought blood, brings water and it brings life. 1 Corinthians 10 talks about this. It says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into, the Mo- into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. When the people of Israel met God in the wilderness, in their grumbling, in their complaint, longing for the satisfaction that Egypt, that they left behind. God meets, meets them there, and when they are deserving of his justice, he gives them his grace. Why? Because Jesus stood on the rock and took the punishment that they deserved. Jesus stood on the rock and took the strike that they deserved, and the blood that flowed out of that strike for the people of Egypt who did not know God turns to water to offer life and satisfaction to the full, to the people of Israel who were called by his name. Listen to what John says in chapter 19 at the crucifixion of Jesus. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. You see, Jesus' death on the cross is the moment in history that if we do not believe, we are condemned because of our unbelief. If we do not believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, then we will never have the satisfying presence of God because the the strike of Jesus condemns us in our guilt. But if we do believe, if we admit that we can't cancel our own sin, if we admit that we can't satisfy our own soul, if we admit that we can't carry our own burden, then the strike that was intended for you lands on Christ. And and all we get is soul-satisfying water the soul-satisfying presence of God. So here's the, the question. Why the wilderness? Because in the wilderness you get Christ. In the wilderness we are rid of our sins. We, we are rid to, to see that uh, soul-satisfying joy does not come from what God has created. It comes from the creator. And, and the only way to get back into his presence, the only way to find life is through the the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's through his blood, his punishment on our behalf. So so when we think about the wilderness, how how are you thinking about it today? Are we grumbling, complaining, saying, God, why can't you just give me the easy life? Why why can't you just make things easy? Why can't you make things work? Why can't you make it good? Or are we thankful for the wilderness? Thankful because in the wilderness, we see that the things that we're running to for satisfaction don't really satisfy and we get Jesus. Through Jesus, we get God. So here's a couple application questions for you. And I would really 
consider uh, just thinking through these later this afternoon. If you're in a microgroup, th these are some great questions to ask just kind of with your group. First question, are you satisfied in your soul? Are you satisfied in your soul? It's a little subjective, but I think it's a big enough question that we could all answer it. Maybe you're still chasing the temporal things in this world, hoping that they'll satisfy, and you just need to remember that in this world, the more I get, the more I want. The more I get, the more discontent I become. This world does not satisfy. It only creates more discontentment. Second, what are some things you have looked for in this world that have not satisfied you? So maybe you're in a dry season spiritually and you're thinking about returning to the slavery of sin. You're thinking about returning to the slavery of Egypt and you just need to sit back and remind yourself that doesn't satisfy. That, that success, that status, that promotion, that raise, it, it doesn't satisfy. It just left me wanting more and you need to do some soul searching, some, some contemplation, even talking this through with a friend and going, what are some things that, that I am putting my hope in that I know won't satisfy? Question number three, what is preventing you from receiving the joy that God offers through Jesus? So maybe you're here this morning, you've never repented of your sin. Maybe you've never uh, put your faith in, in Jesus as your Savior and, and Lord. And there's something just holding you back from receiving this joy. There's something just holding you back from receiving soul-level satisfaction. I would encourage you to talk with somebody on staff, talk with a friend who brought you here. But, but spend some time wrestling through and asking what is it that I'm putting my hope in? What is it in this world that, that I am looking to satisfy? Why isn't it satisfying? And how do I find more satisfaction in a relationship with Jesus? What is preventing us from experiencing the soul-satisfying worship of God today? Moses in the wilderness, the same staff, the same strike, the, the, the same man brought judgment, brought blood for those who did not know Jesus but the same strike brought water, brought hope, brought life, brings the satisfying presence of God himself through the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Are you thirsty this morning? Come and drink and be satisfied. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that all throughout Scripture you are pointing us back to finding joy in a relationship with you.